All right, me again. <laughs> we should not all go, ah. Oh. <laughs> Thank you for that. Mike's out of town, which is a very good thing for him to get away occasionally. Uh, so I'm up here this week. Uh, I think Jay was up here last week. I was out of town last week. So summer, busy, busy. I was just sitting out there wondering, why are we here today? We should all be at Thunder Road. <laughs> They made that sound pretty good. I like the car thing out there. Why wouldn't I? And uh, we're continuing today in a series uh, that Mike started, a series called Staying the Course. It's a series about uh, us building our faith and persevering in times of trial. Uh, and I can't really explain this series any better than Mike himself did in our worship bulletin when he summarized this by saying, how can faith survive suffering? Peter wrote First Peter to comfort and encourage men and women within the Roman Empire who were being persecuted for being Christians. Hope is the theme of Peter's letter to those suffering Christians. In our study of First Peter, we will learn to find hope in the midst of challenging circumstances. The lessons we learn will help us to stay the course when the grade is steep and the going is tough. And I think most of us would testify that it's really hard for many of us to build our faith at times of suffering. Because when we experience pain or when things aren't going our way, when we have things we don't want or don't have the things we do want, it's so easy for our deceptive lying minds to kick in and cause us to start to look at God sideways. Unfortunately, the only thing that can be tougher is trying to develop faith in good times. Because when everything is cool and everything is going well, at those times it can actually be even harder to build our faith, because at times like that, quite frankly, who needs God? (laughs) I'm doing fine. So rather in good times or bad, there's always these challenges to us to try and maintain our faith and to stay the course. And that's why I'm really happy that we landed here in 1 Peter, because there's some great things in here that help us to basically recalibrate our brains, and keep our focus straight. And as they say in sports, help us to keep our eye on the ball. And that's what we're going to take a little bit of a look at uh, today in this part called the living stone. If I were to ask the question, what is real? What do you consider to be real? Uh, To us, what is tangible? What's permanent? What is factual? That's kind of a challenging question, isn't it? Because for us as human beings, we often put our faith in the material world. For instance, like let's take the term real money. What do you consider to be real money? What would have value? To some people I know, what makes real money is a certain dollar amount. Once you have a certain number of zeros, somebody will pipe up and go, boy, that's some real money. (laughs) Uh For others, I remember when I used to go to work and they gave me this thing called, I'm going to date myself, it was called a paycheck. (laughs) Remember those? Where they physically handed you a check and that was pretty real. And then you had to, you could go cash it and take the money or you could put it in the bank and, and that was like 
tangible, but then they did this thing called direct deposit. And instantly, I'm not happy about that because it's a thing that involves computers. <laughs> so remember when com they said computers were those things that were going to make our lives easier? <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> and so now you don't even get a check. They just give you this stub, and apparently the company I work for told their computer to tell their bank's computer to tell my bank's computer to put some numbers in my account, and then I have to get on my computer to make sure all these other computers communicated right. <laughs> so, that, but is that real money? It doesn't even exist anywhere outside of cyberspace. So some others say, well, cash is king. And they think, well, you know, that green stuff, do I have any today? Yeah, I got some, oh, whole stack of ones and a five. <laughs> I knew I had that much. I wouldn't have showed up today. <laughs> but, but, you know, they, well, this is real money. And I thought, well, yeah, this is real until I read this thing on where this came from. And you'll love this. Did you know that all money issued by the government is backed by, and I quote, the full faith and credit of the United States government? Ooh, I've got a problem with that. <laughs> so is that even real? It's just a bunch of pieces of paper. It has value because everybody else thinks it has value. So then they go to precious metals or jewels, gold and silver, and maybe that's real money. But you see how the challenge is really trying to determine what's real. It's the same in this world. For instance, uh, we trust the material. We look out that window and we see things. There's trees, there's grass, there's a road out there. Beyond the road is a field. And we think, well, that's real, that's tangible, right? But if you think about it, there was a time when you looked out that window and that lawn was not there, that tree was not there, that road was not there, that field was not there. And there will come a day when you look out that window and that yard is gone, that tree may be gone, that road might be gone, it will be gone someday, that field will be gone. And so it's hard to even trust that that's real. In fact, believe it or not, someday that window won't be there. <laughs> it could happen. It will happen. So given a sufficient period of time, these things that we trust and we consider to be real and tangible really are not that real, are they? They're not that tangible. And that's why as we study the Bible, what it's really trying to do is enlighten us to the fact that we have a lot of things backwards. And as we try to recalibrate our brains into getting our head around this truth, that the kingdom of God is actually more real and more tangible than this world. That's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? But this God that I can't see, I can't touch him, I can't feel him, but he is actually more real than this planet because he predates this very planet. He was there first, and he will be there when this whole planet is gone. Heaven will still be intact. So as we try to think about these things and redefine our very definition of things like real, we start to understand that maybe we've had some things backwards. It's always fascinated me that in a court of law, 
visual proof is the strongest proof. If you remember whenever you've, you know, you've all been arrested and went to court, remember that, you know, the crimes you committed. And if they had an eyewitness, put a fork in it. You're game over, dude. <laughs> you know, if you have somebody in court saying, yeah, I saw that guy and I saw him do this thing, that's all there is to it. But in science, visual proof is the weakest proof. Science teaches us to hardly ever believe what we see with our eyes. For instance, uh, during sunrises and sunsets, you notice how the sun gets bigger and then it gets smaller as it crosses the sky and then it gets bigger again. How does it do that? <laughs> and even the fact that it moves across the sky, all of that's an illusion. We know from science that the reason it looks the sun and moon look bigger on the horizon is because you're not looking straight through the atmosphere, but it's magnified so you're looking through more of it on the horizon. Kind of like if you look through glasses like this, it'll magnify or distort things. And it's the same with the horizon. So you really, and it's not the sun and moon moving, it's the earth turning. But we don't always factor that in, do we? So we just think things are moving when they're not. Or I remember as a little kid, the first time I remember seeing one of those mirages on the highway. And you just go, look, it rained. It's, there's water up there. No, that's just a mirage. No, I swear it's wet on the highway. And you get up there and it's gone. Creepy. And when you're a little kid, it's like, how did that, where did it go? <laughs> but that's... That's just visual proof being the weakest, and there's a scientific explanation for that. So, and I remember our friend uh, Kurt Anderson, who's a pilot, and I remember talking to Kurt and about the difficulties of training people to fly an airplane. And one of the most critical stages is teaching people who already know how to fly to shift gears and learn to fly by instruments instead of flying visually. How difficult that is for a new pilot when you have to stop trusting what you see or you think you see out of the windshield and trust what your instruments say more than what you believe you're looking at, you know, from the sky. Because literally, especially if you're flying over water, you might think the blue is the sky above and you are literally upside down and what you're seeing is the water and not the sky. And if you think you're going to pull up, you could be going down instead. So sooner or later, with the bigger planes, you have to trust those instruments. And it's exactly the same for us as human beings, is sooner or later we have to learn to detach more from what we think we know and we think we see and detach from what we think we feel and learn to trust more in what the Bible says and less in what our lying minds say. So with that in mind, as we're looking at this passage that we're dealing with today in First Peter, the Bible says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, the living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. 
Now to you who believe the stone is, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This passage talks about rocks and about tripping and stones, stone, things like that. And uh, some of those are familiar terms to me. And, you know, we're going to talk about tripping. Some people perk up because being tripping is a good thing <laughs> if you're a drug addict. <laughs> but uh, But in... In normal life, tripping is not usually associated with anything fun, is it? Uh, when we think about tripping, you know, we often think and stumbling and falling down. None of those things sound really positive. And when they're talking in here specifically about tripping over the rock, who is Jesus, that makes this even a little more intriguing, especially when they throw the word living rock in there. As you go through the Bible, you see that God and Jesus are associated with a lot of different concepts and inanimate objects, but they oftentimes add the word living to these things. The Bible talks about God as a living God. Uh, Christ talked about he was living water. He was living bread, a living sacrifice. The Bible talks about a living hope. He was the living word, and today he talks about himself as a living stone. And you think, well, why is it so important that these things are alive? And I think the point is that we don't want to ever think of God as an inanimate object. We often make that mistake in talking about God's spirit. We refer to the Holy Spirit as an it instead of a he. But accurately, God and his spirit are people. They're alive. And I think that's critical to weave into our belief system because you really can't have relationships with inanimate objects. The fact that these analogies are always stressing the personhood of these things, the personality, the individuality, the fact that these things have life, I think makes a huge difference to us, or at least I hope it does, because it means that we can have a viable relationship with God, a relationship with and through his spirit. And I think that's a critical piece to putting this puzzle together. And the problem, though, when it talks about tripping, the the analogy here, the picture they're painting, is almost like we're tripping 
over Jesus. People were tripping over him. And where my head goes in that, when I add the living piece, I'm thinking that I'm being tripped by a person. Anybody ever had that happen? You're walking along and some bully sticks his leg out and you trip over it and maybe fall down. That's rude. That is so uncool when people do that. Especially if you're a little kid and being bullied by somebody, they do it so they can laugh at you. And when I think of God, like intentionally tripping me or tripping somebody, that, that paints a picture of kind of a, a mean God. At the least, a prankster. At the worst, a bully. But you see, it's a whole different dynamic when we trip over inanimate objects, isn't it? See, because if I trip over something that's laying on the sidewalk, I don't have, I can blame somebody for maybe leaving that there, but it's not like they intentionally did that to me. It's not personal. And probably, if I would have been paying attention, I probably could have seen it coming and avoided it. And the process for me tripping, and believe me, I know a lot about tripping because I am not the drug thing. It's because I'm clumsy. I'm kind of a lummox, (laughs) and I kind of have a history of just tripping over things. I always tell people I could literally trip over the lines painted on the highway, (laughs) which really is tough because they just repainted the lines on the highway out by my place. I have to walk across the road every day to get the mail, and now they're twice as thick, (laughs) which doubles my chances of tripping over those things. But as I'm walking along, when I trip over something, the first thing I do when I trip is I stop moving. And then I turn around, and I have to look to see what I tripped over. That's especially important if there's witnesses. (laughs) Because I don't want them to think I just fell over my own feet, so I want to go, oh, you see that sidewalk is buckled, or there's something laying on the road there. So I'm always going to stop and pay attention to what I tripped over. And then the third thing, if you're me, after you trip and you almost fall down and you look, then you spit out your gum. <laughs> because I remember I was told a long time ago that I can't walk and chew gum at the same time. So there's that part. <laughs> but, the po- but the point of the story is just that tripping is not necessarily a bad thing. Because at least you can find obstacles that need to be removed things that need to be repaired so other people don't trip over it, or there's things that can get your attention. And we're going to visit a couple of little stories today to illustrate how tripping can be an even better thing because it's interesting in the English language, sometimes people find things by accident. And you know what we say in those situations? They stumbled upon something. What a cool saying. And there's... A lot of stories out there, for instance, of doctors and medical professionals that stumbled upon cures or treatments for illness. They weren't, they might have been looking in a general way, but they had a breakthrough quite by accident. Or police officers that stumbled upon clues that they weren't really expecting that helped them to solve cold cases. Or, uh, uh, some people talk about how they stumbled upon these abandoned muscle cars parked in some old barn someplace that had tremendous value. And I love those stories. I also hate them because that never happens to me. But 
you know, or like stories like I'm when I mow my lawn and sometimes I stumble upon a car I forgot I had. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> but here's a story to kind of illustrate what we're talking about. This comes out of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution uh, of May of 1987. There was a story told about a man named Rob Cutshaw. He lived in the western part of North Carolina in Cherokee County. Rob was a rock hound, and he didn't have a lot of money. He would find rocks, he'd dig them up, and he'd sell them for a little bit of cash to feed his family. And he did also did other odd jobs like cutting wood to make money, and, and he spent most of his life poor. He was on a dig one night when he found a giant blue rock that he described as being pretty and big. <laughs> Not pretty big, just it was pretty and it was big. So Rob kept this rock and he put it in his closet at home and it was just this big, beautiful rock. He'd take it out once in a while to look at it, but eventually he sort of forgot about it. There was one time he looked at it and he thought to himself, you know, I think I could probably get about $500 for this rock if I need it for the electric bill, I might do that. Yeah. So. But then he put it away, and his life went on. He always seemed to have enough to meet his needs, and he never needed to resort to selling it. But finally, one day, he got to thinking about that big blue rock again, so he decided to take it to an appraiser. So Rob takes it out, and he asks this guy, so just what is this thing? So what the heck is this thing? <laughs> and... uh and the appraiser's eyes got enormous, and he was speechless. He quickly called somebody else and said, wait here, don't leave, and then went and got another man. And that guy arrived, and they looked at it together, and then another guy gets called, and he shows up, and eventually they have the whole crew there, rooms full of people. Now, unbeknownst to dear Rob, he had discovered the largest sapphire ever found, which is now known appropriately, as the Star of David Sapphire. Its estimated value today is in the neighborhood of $3.5 million. Ooh. And you see, he didn't literally trip over that, but yet he stumbled upon it. And because he was paying attention, because something about this got his attention, it caused him to dig it up and to keep it. But even in having it, one of my favorite parts of that story that is assumed and not told directly, but you think about the value that Rob put on this thing versus the value it real, really had. Because Rob knew that this thing had value. It had value to him because it was pretty. And it was fun to take out and dust off and look at. And he thought it might have value to somebody else that would appreciate it for those qualities. So the value he assigned to it was $500. <laughs> Can you imagine what a sob story this would be had he actually sold it for that and then found out its value? Ooh, I don't, oh, let's not even go there. But instead, he kept it. And when he finally found out the value, he didn't become rich. At that point, he was already rich. He just didn't know it yet. <laughs> and I think in those words, I just described Christianity. See, the message we carry 
is not that if you trust God, you're going to go to heaven when you die and be rich. The message is we already are. We just don't always know it yet. We don't always appreciate the supreme value that God puts on us. Because you see, when Rob found this rock and it came into his possession, it wasn't just that the rock was worth three and a half million dollars. By default, once he owned it, he became worth three and a half million dollars. And it's exactly the same way with us. We might think we're worthless. We might think we don't have a lot of value. We might think that we are depreciated because of the things we've done in life or because of what other people's opinions are. But when we go to the ultimate appraiser and he assigns a value to us, we begin to realize how important and how valuable we all are to God. And therefore, by assigning us that value, we become valuable. That is where our value comes from. And that's why in this passage today it talks about how it's not just Jesus that has value because by extension, his value is passed on to us. Here's another little story that kind of illustrates how this whole thing works. Uh, there's also the story, it was a, just a normal day for one northern California couple who were out walking their dog on their property when they spotted something unusual. While on a trail that they had walked nearly every day for years, they spotted a partially buried can and decided to pry it out of the earth with the help of a nearby stick. The can was unusually heavy, but nothing could have prepared them for what they would find when they pried the lid open. Mixed in with dirt and stones, they could see the edges of numerous U.S. $20 gold pieces, literally a pot of gold. Upon discovering the gold, the couple headed back out to the site to see if lightning could strike twice, and it did, seven more times. Immediately, they located the remains of another can, buried a bit deeper and about a foot to the left of the first can. Rust had consumed about half of the can's sides, exposing another cache of gold coins. Repeated trips to the site and the help of a metal detector eventually uncovered a total of eight cans filled with over 1,400 rare U.S. gold coins. In total, the couple had found almost 1,400 $20 gold pieces, 50 $10 gold pieces, and four $5 gold pieces, all of which were struck between 1847 and 1894 and believed to have been buried for more than a 100 years. Uh, one person believes that this is the largest buried treasure ever unearthed in the United States, though the face value of the coins is approximately approximately $28,000, experts say the collection could go for more than $10 million. The find has been dubbed the Saddle Ridge Treasure, named after a feature on their property in Northern California. And this concludes by saying, Kagan's agency isn't saying exactly where the couple lives or what... <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm glad you like that too. Or when they found the treasure, as the man and wife wished to remain anonymous. <laughs> Durr. <laughs> you think? <laughs> you see, what a great story. And once again, the reason I love that illustration is because they did exactly what I would do, and I think you might do too. When they found a treasure, something they thought could be worthless, but they dug it up anyway, they pursued it, not realizing the value, and having discovered the value, what did they do? They went back for more. Again, duh. <laughs> and that's what an intelligent person would do. When we start to discover the extreme value that we find in our faith, in Christianity, in good times or bad, wouldn't it just make good sense to keep digging? (laughs) Wouldn't it just make good sense to go back for more? And you see, unfortunately, that sometimes defies human nature, though, because of our lying minds. I can't tell you how many times I've known people that found these diet programs that worked, and they lost weight. I go, well, then what did you do? Well, I quit following it. <laughs> Went to this gym, got buffed, got really in great shape, and then what did you do? Oh, I let my membership lapse, and I quit going. <laughs> or people that that found other things like that that work, and then we you know, recovery programs, and then what did you do? Well, I stopped attending. <laughs> then twist it off again. You see, the real challenge to pursuing things that work is to persevere. If something works, keep doing it. If we find something that has value, keep digging. If we're doing things that actually benefit us or benefit others, don't stop doing them. And that's really the message of First. Peter is to remind us of what we've found, to remind us of the supreme value it has, and to stay the course despite all of the evidence out here that's trying to trip us up in a bad way. So the last part of this, as we go through these accounts, and as we go through the passage that we're dealing with today, you'll notice that it not only says that Jesus is the living stone and that he's precious, but what I love in here is he says that we, through him, become other living stones. So it's not just that Christ has value and that he is precious, but by default he is passing his value on to us. And because he does that, we become the very building blocks of what Christ is trying to build on this planet, which is his church. That's what I love about the foundations of this ministry, is we've always been quick to point out to people, God does not build his church using sticks and stones or bricks and mortar. Because how many people, if you told them to go take a picture of a church, they'd go take a picture of a building. If we were to take a picture of a church knowing what we know, we wouldn't take a picture of a building, we'd take a picture of the people. Because God builds his church using flesh and blood. 
God builds his church with people. And once we get our heads around that truth, which is foundational, we start to see how we can all be used as building blocks collectively. We can build something better than any one of us can build individually. One object lesson of how that works is if you start a campfire and you take any individual stick out of it and set it aside, it will go out. But together, if you keep all the sticks together, they all keep burning. There's a synergy there where the collective has more power than any individual piece. And so it is with ministries like this one. We realize that if we pooled our resources, we could accomplish much more together than any one of us could hope to accomplish individually. And that was the whole reason for Hope Community Church, was to try and accomplish what they're talking about here. And it's also great because it talks not about the value we find in God, but the value he finds in us how precious we are to him. I love that. And the final part is it says, okay, now that we know this and we're getting our heads around it and we believe it, what do we do with this information? And this passage concludes with what I think is one of the most practical things they could tell us. It's like what it tells us is live good lives. Go out and live. First of all, live. And the way we live is important, to live good lives, live humble lives. Just do normal things, but do it in such a way that we're not tripping other people up in a bad way, but in a good way. We can challenge people without being a brick wall to them. And this is, I think, the real point of this that I'd like to land on as we end, is that As I look at that, I'm thinking, okay, all my life I've thought, well, I need to act right. But the reason I need to act right is because God is watching. (laughs) And it might be acting right out of fear because God's going to get you, a fear of punishment, a fear of, of upsetting him. But what this passage is saying, the point isn't that God is watching us. It's that the lost are watching us. For their sake, we are going to practice what we preach. For their sake, it's important for us to live godly lives and to not unnecessarily stir up dissension and anger and bitterness and hatred and jealousy and all of those other things. Not because we're afraid that God is going to get us or because God is watching, but because they are and we are their hope. What keeps us accountable is God, but it's more equally important is that it's others. Think about that. Where does accountability come from in a, in a, in an American family? Is it really from parents? I mean, if you're a child, yeah, your parents are going to hold your feet to the fire. They're going to keep you accountable, I hope, (laughs) and that's a good thing. But we reach a certain age where that relationship that starts out like this in a family, this is us as kids and these are our parents, it severs those teenage rebellious years, and then eventually it's like a bone 
that needs to be broken to set right. And then we meet our parents and kids. They come together as equals because we're all adults. And eventually, if everybody lives long enough, that relationship severs again and goes like this. And then all of a sudden, the kids are playing the parenting role and the parents are playing the child's role. Some of us out here I know are experiencing that right now, and it's not fun. <laughs> but, but you see, the point of that is that where is the accountability in that? See, I don't do things or haven't for many years because if I do something wrong, I get a call on the, on the telephone from dad, you know, did you say that naughty word? <laughs> you know, did you do something wrong? If you can't dodge your parents when you're a certain age, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> but you see, what keeps us accountable isn't our parents, it's our own children, isn't it? If you teach your kids not to lie and they catch you lying, they are the first ones that are going to bust you on it. If you tell your children not to steal and they catch you stealing, they're the ones that are going to point it out to you. If you tell your children not to to use certain words and you use them, man, instantaneously you're going to hear about that. Didn't you say not to use golf words in the house? <laughs> so... <laughs> And you see, that that's how accountability works. And I think that's how accountability works in our society. Is It's not just being accountable to God, but being accountable to those that don't know what we know, that don't believe what we believe, that don't have their brains calibrated to see what we see spiritually. And for their sake, I think it's important as we go out from here to do things that demonstrate the very principles that we claim to believe in because their hope is contained in us being right. And thank God, because we know we're right, we can act like it. So call the worship team up and and we'll close. Lord, some people find you because they're searching for you. Other people find you because they stumble upon you. And still others seem that they never find you at all. But Lord, because all of our life is a ministry and everything we do is a testimony one way or the other, then please let our lives reflect you as we go out from here. And we just pray that we are able to persevere but not just for our own sake, Lord, but for theirs, for the lost. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.